Welcome to another PI World podcast. This is an audio-only version offered as another way to enjoy our great content. A full video version can be seen on piworld.co.uk, where you can find many more videos of interest to investors. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining, especially newcomers as well as the frequent flyers. We have an agenda. So I'm going to do an introduction and key stats. Then we'll have the financial results with Eamon, the market summary with Pippa, and the way forward back to me again. So the team have given me the the responsibility for delivering some of the bad news, first of all. Uh, That's appropriate for a managing director. We've had a year of two very different halves. The first half was good. Everything was fine. We just bought two very good brands. And then the second half brought with it relentless challenges. We had raw material shortages, delivery and logistics issues, raw material and component price increases, energy costs probably driven by the Ukraine war as much as other things, labor shortages, return to work, absence due to COVID. And then we had, on top of that, the job of integrating the two new acquisitions, particularly Emma Hardy, and those brought with them some extraordinary costs, non-recurring. The negative overall impact of that in the second half was 1.25 billion. We had a huge drop in manufacturing efficiency caused by late deliveries and absences. The late deliveries were due to the global situation. However, the manufacturing uh, drop in efficiency was compensated by our earlier efforts on automation and upgrading our machinery. So uh, we actually compensated that by by, uh, reducing, first of all, the COVID costs and then uh, improved efficiencies. So although we did take a hit, probably 30,000 a month in terms of the cost of poor deliveries, late deliveries, we we, uh, actually overcame that quite quickly. The next challenge was energy costs, driven probably, as, as I said, by the Ukraine situation. And in the second half, they increased by a very substantial 350,000. We had the Emma Hardy integration, which was harder to handle in a situation where you have all these negative factors hitting you. So that that would put an extra 400,000 on the overhead. 200,000 of that is non-recurring or temporary. Then we had compensation and employee increase. We did a a 3% pay increase. But we also started to part company with people to reduce that overhead. So that, in terms of unusual or increased cost, was 200000 And then the other things that build on top of uh, these problems that occur were maintenance. We did a site upgrade, but we had depreciation due to increased machine costs that we invested in in the earlier part of the year. And we had increased audit costs. So they all amounted to 300,000 in total, 1.25 million. All fairly bad news as far as the results were concerned. But on the other hand, on the next slide, I want to just highlight there were quite a number of positive things as well. Our sales and gross margin remained at the first half levels, a credit to Pippa and her team. We moved quickly into an overhead reduction plan 
which Eamon is piloting and is well on its way. It should yield a million pound reduced overheads by the end of the year. On an annualized basis, it will be a million. The actual impact in 22-23 will probably be um, a lot less. But it is ongoing, it is effective, and it will be achieved. Our price increases are now systematically calculated in terms of product and in terms of customer and negotiated with that customer or retailer. There is a possible lag in that, and particularly will have an effect in 22-23. That effect could be up to 2 million. That's why we're so urgently reducing our overhead costs and we'll negate that as far as we can in 22-23. So the way it works is we get we have price increases from November 21 to date of 4 million on an annualized basis, which means we must pass on 6.5 million to retain our margin. At the moment, Pippa has successfully negotiated and passed on 3.2 million of that. And we're in the process of negotiating and hopefully completing the 3.3 million. So um, it will eventually all be passed on to the retailer or the customer or the consumer. But in the meantime, there is a, a lag and that lag could amount to 2 million. The bad, that's the bad news. It, couldn't, it won't be any worse than 2 million and we will upset, offset it as far as possible with the overhead reduction. So with the kind of bad news, um, trail before you and probably um, it's it's we've given you the worst case scenario there uh, I'll leave it to Pippa and Eamon, Eamon is following now with the financials to give you the good news and, and where we would like to be in the future thank you thanks Bernard morning everybody so I'd just like to talk about the uh, financial results we issued results last week um, so I'd like to just um, uh, present some financial highlights, uh, show, some, show some trends, and starting with the um, the core sales there have increased very impressively by 10.3 million during the year, which together with the acquisitions of 3.6 million have substantially replaced the 14.6 million of hygiene sales in the previous year. So that's a really good achievement on the top line. The effect of which the revenue has only decreased uh, for the full year by 0.7%. To 61.2 million compared to 61.6 million in the previous year. EBITDA, we have some further information on EBITDA, that's down a million, mainly as a result, not so much into top line stalling or margin stalling. It's really just as a result of those higher operating costs coming through, energy and staff costs and other inflation related items coming through. So we have some more information on that a little later. Operating profit then correspondingly down. And the margin similarly down to 7.1 from 8.8% in the previous year. We had a reduced tax charge of 0.3 million, which, uh, as you can see, there equates to an effective tax rate of 10%. So we're getting the benefit there of R&D tax credits, which we claim, and also the tax benefit of shared options that were exercised during the year. We get the tax benefit now rather than uh, in the past when those options were granted. So so they're all flowing through in terms of a lower tax charge uh, in the current period. So the profit after tax then, taking all those things into account, has decreased by 1.2 million to 3.1 for the full year. So the profit reduction together with the issue of shares has reduced the fully diluted EPS to 3.98. 
compared to 5.89 in the previous year. And it's, we have a slide on earnings per share, but it's worth noting that we have more shares in issue as a result of the acquisition and share options, which will be a feature of that reduced EPS in the current year. And the balance sheet, however, remains strong. And you'll see that we have included a significant intangibles, 10.1 million combined in respect of basically the intangible assets, the brands principally that we bought uh, from the Emma Hardy and uh, Brody and Stone acquisitions. So they're included in the, um, the balance sheet under intangible assets, and uh, they will be um, in accordance with the accounting policies. They're subject to annual impairment um, and um, annual, annual assessment. So net cash in hand, as you can see, has reduced negative 2.1. 1 million compared to positive 6.2 million in respect of the previous year. So that's obviously showing the impact of the acquisitions and also the additional working capital required. So the directors do not propose uh, the payment of a final dividend, just really in anticipation of the turbulent economic conditions, which all businesses are facing, manufacturing businesses. So we're not proposing a dividend in the current year. So the second half performance, as Bernard has covered off, has, has been adversely affected by the well-publicized global inflationary and supply chain pressures. So this is top-line revenue. People will cover this off in significant detail later in the presentation, but I think it's worth just calling out the core, which is the purple. You can see the, the core has gone from 34.8 at the start of this chart to 57.3 in the current year. So that is a significant increase over that period. You can see the previous chart, that white box is the 14.6 million of the hygiene sales, which principally was a once-off benefit we had in the previous year, has, has almost entirely disappeared in the current year. And we've started to add on the benefit there of the new acquisition. So the turnover in the current year is 3.6 million from the acquisitions. We've got eight months Emma Hardy in there, and we have six months Brody and Stone Brands in there. So... Put together, all of those amount to uh, an increase in core sales of 21%. We have growth across all revenue streams, uh, disappearance and successful replacement of the hygiene and sales from acquisitions of 3.6 million. So operating profit then, just to call out a couple of things on operating profit. We actually have a higher gross margin when you look at the P&L accounts. We, so our gross margin year on year is plus 1 million. So I think it's probably reflecting some of the extraordinary costs that we had in the previous year. We had we had quite uh, significant um, COVID uh, costs in the margin area. You know, additional people, the cost of doing business, um, air freighting of components. So all of those additional costs would have been there. So so when they disappeared in the current year, it actually we actually have a margin. Uh, benefit and we didn't obviously we obviously did we had we made significant stock provisions into into previous year in relation to some of those stock items so we get the benefit in the current year of those so so it's positive on the on the gross margin side however as partly offset we started to see the cost increases coming through into the PL in, in the second half that Bernard has highlighted and they will continue to come through and that's why the recovery of those price increases is so important. Distribution is up slightly, 0.2 million. And the admin costs, really significant increase in the admin cost there, 2 million. We have 0.7 of that is, is in relation to the Emma Hardy additional admin costs, which we didn't have in the previous year comparison. And then we have across the board overhead increases, things like energy, which was a huge unexpected shock really to our system. So we're seeing you know, 0.3 million in respect of uh, higher energy costs. 
We have higher insurance. We have stack staff costs. And there was a couple of things to say on, on staff costs. Obviously, we made a decision to staff up. Uh, we took on a number of additional people in anticipation of the growing business. So we need additional skills uh, uh, across our business, across a number of key areas. That was that was a decision that we took. Uh, in addition, it's probably um, we made reference to the, the inflationary environment. But one of the consequences... That, that, that we are dealing is the employment market is very tight at the moment. Um, there is um, almost no un, almost no unemployment. We have seen it costs more to get it costs more to get in good people. It costs more to retain people, and it, obviously it costs more to uh, recruit people. So that's that has been a feature of um, uh, the decisions that we taken in order to you know to staff up the, uh, the business and. Uh, it's probably it's probably time to say you know what we are what we have embarked upon is an ambitious uh, uh, overhead uh, reduction program that Bernard is referencing you know one million one million uh, reduction is our target um, at least I would say and you know we're actively engaged in a number of fronts across all areas of the business to to, to reduce overhead to take out cost uh, wherever we possibly can. This next chart then is just the operating percentage. So you can see the growth there to 7.1% compared to 8.8 in the previous year. And you know the elements of that are reflected on the comments you made on the previous chart. So EBITDA then follows the similar pattern. EBITDA is down a million. Basically, this is just flowing, flowing through by and large. We're seeing the effect of those higher costs coming through in a reduced EBITDA in the year. It is, however, at 5.9, up 16% compared to March 20. So then you put all that together in terms of a diluted EPS, obviously we have reduced earnings and the EPS is obviously calculated after exceptional costs of 0.6 and they're really acquisition related exceptional costs, but you know, we, we, we take them as required under the accounting standards, we have to deal with them in the P&L. So they come off your earnings calculation. Uh, so we have a, obviously a, a higher weighted average number of shares as well. So we had, we, we issued additional shares uh, arising on the acquisition. So with 1.6 million additional shares um, in respect of Emma Hardy with a million in respect of the Brody and Stone. So um, there are additional shares in existence. And then there, was, then there was the additional shared options as well, which get factored into this diluted uh, earnings per share calculation. Uh, so... It's probably just worth just make just worth making the point that if we didn't have the exceptional cost in the earnings calculation, that EPS figure would be four point six six three p. So return on capital employed. So obviously this has been a transformative year in terms of the acquisition. So the balance sheet has been beefed up effectively with the uh, the take on of the two acquisitions. Our uh, capital employed is obviously higher because we've taken on debt. So our balance sheet includes, as I've, as I've alluded to, 10 million of um, acquisition-related intangibles. Um, and we haven't, seen the, we haven't seen the full benefit of those acquisitions uh, in the current year. I mean, um, so this, this flows through into a reduced uh, return on capital employed. So as we move forward, we start delivering the, the full benefits of those acquisitions. Obviously, we see that return on capital employed move back to previous levels. It's probably worth uh, talking about the, the acquisitions and the integration. And um, I, just for people's, people's information, we, we, took, we did the Brody and Stone acquisition in September. The completion date was the end of September. And uh, we went into, in terms of the Brody and Stone, we didn't take any people by virtue of that acquisition. So 
it was entirely over to Pippa and the commercial team basically to take on all the commercial uh, responsibility of selling those brands, which we did immediately and successfully integrated them, managed the customer relationships. We moved the stock from external warehouses into our own warehouse. We took on the manufacturing and all those products were manufactured outside our business. They're all, for the most part now, manufactured internally. We did everything we needed needed to do. And um, so that was all done within a matter of probably two to three months. So that one, we've already... Uh, seen much of the benefits of that acquisition. It's successfully integrated in, into the into the business, and I, I know Pippa has ambitious growth plans for those brands in particular. And Emma Hardy is has, is is a little bit slower uh, in terms of we haven't taken on the manufacturing. We're, we're, we're proceeding just just to make certain sure. Um, that, that, that um, the quality of those products when we take them in-house is where it needs to be. So we're, we're, we're proceeding, we're proceeding uh, cautiously, but, but determinedly, I would say, uh, with, with that acquisition. So it's probably just worth, worth making those positive points, I think, in relation to the acquisitions. This is the cash flow summary, really, has, has been a, a year of change in terms of cash. So we started the year in a positive situation. So our net cash has reduced by 5.7 million from 6.5 million to 0.8 million. And we can see the components here of it. And a couple of things probably to call out in particular on this summary, the revenue in the cash flow statement in our annual report, but the working capital is 4.276 of an increase. So there's a couple of elements. Obviously, the amount attributable to the working capital relating to the acquisitions is 1.6 million, which means the residual associated with the core business is 2.7 million. And a couple of features really just to comment on the core business. Obviously, costs are rising. So you're going to see that in, in terms of in terms of a higher uh, working capital and a stock component in particular. Um, and also the supply chain pressures. We have taken a couple of decisions, obviously, to extend um, uh, lead times, which means that we, we need to bring in more stock probably earlier, just in order to secure and guarantee supply. So we're seeing we're seeing an increase in stocks as well. We have an increase in our branded business, which will require uh, further stock in our branded business there. So there's a, there's a number of particular components uh, that are driving that working capital. Obviously, it's an area that we focus on and will continue to focus on relentlessly. And you know, the second half will be will be about cash management. It'll be about overhead reduction and growing the top line. So that's certainly sharply on the radar in that area. Uh, obviously, the acquisitions we've spoken about uh, in some detail. So you can see that on this chart, we've got 6.6 million in respect of the cash out on those acquisitions. And we also paid back 2.6 million in respect of debt on the acquisitions. And in order to assist us funding these things, we did draw down a term loan of 3 million to support acquisition and, and additional working capital. So when put together, you can see we have a cash reduction of 5.7 million over. The 12 months. Just some comments on working capital, as you'd expect to see there when we take on business, our working capital is going up. So you see it in, in uh, receivables, partly related to the acquisition there, 13.6 million, up 33%. The debtor days below it is up to 60 days and 52 days. Probably a couple of points in the previous year is worth making the point. We had the benefit of the, the hygiene related international health service contract, who um it was a pretty fast around, fast turnaround uh, working capital arrangement that you know we 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 stocked up very quickly. We got paid within 
within within in, in pretty good time. Uh, so the working capital cycle was quite short in relation to that piece of business. Uh, ongoing, we're probably going to be you know are, are, uh, in the in the region of that sort of sixty days uh, for our trade debtors. Uh, stock increase, uh, obviously a big increase in stock, fifty uh, percent increase in stock. Of, uh, but if you exclude the acquisitions, it's up up eighteen eighteen percent. And um, I've made reference part of that is going to be due to the cost inflation that's coming through and is reflecting in higher stock valuation and also um, the um, stock turnover. And again, we had we had the benefit of the hygiene in the previous years, which was helping our stock turnover. This year, we're more our growth is going to be in in uh, the branded sector in particular, which is which we're laying down stocks uh, in in that category. So. We're going to, we had a reduced uh, stock turner by virtue of those factors. This is just a summary of the acquisitions, their material numbers and the accounts. Really, it's, it's fully disclosed in, uh, in Note 8. It's just really showing out, you know, what, what did we get, the total assets acquired and how we pay this. So we have a cash component in both of them. We issued shares in both of them. We had some deferred consideration uh, and then we have a contingent consideration in, in, in the case of Emma Hardy, which is related uh, to the uh, share price. And uh, there is a, a share price guarantee in respect of that transaction of 125. So that's the contingent consideration uh, that's referred to there. That's, that's disclosed in our accounts. This is my last slide on the financials. I think it's worth just calling out the H1 versus H2 comparison, really, of the results that we've just analyzed. And you can see the first half, everything was on track. We have had a downturn, a reduced performance in the second half, principally as a result of those higher operating costs coming through into the business. On the positive side, the turnover is, as you can see, is has maintained an increase. Margin has maintained an increase. The challenge for this year is to, is, is to keeping and maintaining that margin in securing those increases as the additional costs come through as we sell the goods. Profit before tax H1 was 2.3 and H2 1.2, as I say, mainly reflecting those higher overhead and exceptional costs. So I think that's all from me. So if I can hand over to Pippa. Thank you, Eamon. Good morning, everybody. Just to give some framework on the beauty industry before I get into more detail about our business and what we're doing and where we're heading. I just wanted to, as I do in most of these presentations, just give you some top line statistics on the beauty industry, focusing predominantly on the UK market. Still a very buoyant category. We're still very fortunate to be in the beauty arena that continues to deliver really great growth. We have a consumer that is continuing to want to consume and buy product at all levels in the sector. I think the things to note here that are really driving things is three key areas. The skincare category at all levels is really the biggest category and the biggest growth category within health and beauty and is an area in which we are um, continuing to play very strongly and grow. And clearly you would have seen from the two acquisitions, the skincare brands at both a mass level and at a premium level were key targets for us. The other area that is really important um, in our industry at the moment is the continued growth of e-commerce and direct-to-consumer. It has gone off the boil in the past kind of three to four months, really coming out of the COVID peak. Um, but also, I think a lot of the big beauty platforms are finding it incredibly challenging in terms of price and having to keep that consumer through quite significant promotional 
activity and discounting. So while still a very important feature, and as we come out of this economic downturn, will continue to be an important feature, um, it is important to recognize that it is suffering a little bit at the moment. The other area is prestige sector, not just in skincare, but in all categories in health and beauty, continued to grow just under 5% over the next few years and continues to hold up very, very well, even through the economic downturn. And then finally, the fourth area that continues to drive this whole industry is the wellness category overlapping with beauty. And obviously our Feather and Down brand and launch of that brand five years ago was us recognizing that, but that is continuing to push forward in terms of a key trend within our beauty market. The consumer is continuing to look for better pricing, value and affordability. And in fact, the economy is only accelerating that. Um, but even when things were more buoyant, that is still a feature of the beauty market. They're very well educated. They're very socially media savvy. Um, they understand the products. Um, they shop about. So they're always looking for good pricing, value and affordability at all levels. Transparency is very important. That's mainly with concern to ingredients that we use, uh, claims that we make. Beauty moving over into wellness, I've already highlighted. Sustainability becoming a very key feature, particularly with regard to packaging, but also moving in now with regard to raw materials. And again, a result of the consumer being incredibly well-educated in this market. And then accessibility. Um, she and he want to be able to buy products, whether it be in the discounters, whether it be in mass market grocers, whether it be in premium outlets, or whether it be online in specialists or in marketplaces. So again, accessibility in terms of where we have our products is very important. And again, as Eamon started to highlight, this is all within the kind of framework of battling very high inflation, 9.7% to the end of March, and retail sales down February to March by 6.7%. And some of the latest numbers I've seen over the past couple of months that is still continuing to slide. So households budgets are squeezed, and along with that, we have supply chains that are under significant pressure. So a really positive category, but still facing all the headwinds that everybody else is with regard to retail, consumer spending, and trying to get a good proportion where we can of that consumer spend. So going into a bit more detail on the performance by division on our top line sales from 2021 to 21-22, all categories and all divisions have done extremely well in terms of sales growth. Private label delivering 9% growth and representing 41% total of our total group sales business. Contract doing very well at 29% growth, now representing 26% of our, our total sales. And then branded really pushing ahead with 39% growth and representing 27%. So some fantastic numbers coming out of brand, which I'll go through in some detail about where that's coming from and where we're gaining and why that's driving forward. And then the brand acquisitions from the beginning of August in the case of Emma Hardy and the beginning of October in the case of Brody and Stone delivering 3.6 million for us, demonstrating, as Eamon's already highlighted, the replacing of that 14.6 million hygiene bounce that we got during COVID. So just a bit of commentary on those three divisions. Private label by far, is the most challenged in terms of cost inflation. We've been battling cost inflation in the private label division quite significantly since November of last year. We went to the market in end of December, early January with our first round of price increases. That was between seven and a half and 15%. 
going to all the major retailers in the UK, of which we've secured everything we needed to at that time. Bernard is quite right. There's been a lag. Um, the big retailers have a tendency to want 12 weeks notice on any price increases. We've managed to improve on that with some of them, but they are quite insistent that they want that, that gap to be able to assess the impact and put their ducks in a row, if you like, in terms of accepting those price increases. So that first round of price increases has now started to impact, which is very positive. And we have now gone out to the market again um, for another between seven and a half and nine percent um, of price increases. That again, there'll be that kind of three month lag in terms of getting that push through. But I'm hopeful that we'll get a large proportion of that through. But it is definitely the most challenged the division, and it's also because of the type of products. Um, raw materials has been our biggest area of price inflation over the past six to eight months. And a lot of our private label products are quite large in size. So you're talking fills of 300, 350 mil, 500 mil in the case of baby and bath and body. We do some very big body lotions and emollient dry skin based products, which are quite large in size. Um, so therefore, they've had the biggest impact. So when I reference 15 percent, that has been in the private label division. On the upside, um, outside of the financial year we're discussing today, but just to give you some insights, the past three months of this current trading year, in terms of the EPOS data that we're seeing, retail is up by 10% in the private label categories that we supply. So as you would have seen, no doubt, in some of the industry press, consumers definitely transferring to private label options in terms of finding a way to reduce their household spend, which is having a very positive impact on the private label category. So very positive news in that respect. And linked into that is that the retailers really took their eye off their ball with regard to private label during the kind of 18 months, two years COVID period. And now that has really started again in earnest. We've recently won three new briefs with a large grocer that we actually haven't won any business with for 18 months and there's more going on with that particular grocer that's leading the charge, which is really positive. And lots going on with lots of other retailers and private labels. So in terms of this trading year for private label and the impact it'll have on 2023, um, feeling more positive in terms of the activity and the sales opportunities, the challenge there for us really is the cost inflation that we're continuing to battle in that category. With regard to our brands, um, 30% of all of our brand sales is now represented in export markets and continues to grow, which I think is a very positive feature of our sales momentum and growth that's happening in our brands. All of our brands are in growth. We have two of them that are over 100% in growth year on year, which is very exciting. And I'll go into that in a bit more detail as I go through the brands. And we're getting very positive margin contribution from the acquired brands. So despite some of the challenges that Eamon's already outlined in terms of transitioning those brands because of the global supply chain pressures, particularly, that is making a very positive margin contribution to the business. So very positive in that respect. Contract manufacturing. The top customers in this division are performing very well, albeit they are very pressured with supply chain. So we do find a lag on being able to supply orders. We have a number of key customers that free issue componentry. We work very closely with their teams and their suppliers, even though the components are free issued, but there are constant delays. So, you know, sales that we might anticipate in, in a February period get moved to March, March gets moved to April. Um, so whilst those sales do ultimately happen, there is a lag because of the supply chain pressures and delays in getting um, 
components and raw materials available for many of these large contract customers that we have. Skincare continues to dominate, which follows through on the piece that I did at the very beginning in terms of framing this industry. Um, we're doing more and more skincare products in contract manufacturing, which is very positive. And we've had some very positive growth in the contract area with a retailer that also is a big brand owner. And we're developing that relationship very positively and is one of the reasons that we saw some significant growth um, in the period and hope to see even more growth coming through this trading year and the next trading year. So focusing on brands, because it has been responsible for 39% growth year on year, I wanted to give you more insight into the journey we've had with the development of our brands over the past four years. And as you can see from the chart below, we've gone from our core sales of 8.7 million up to 16.5 million with regard to branded development. So we've doubled effectively what we're doing in terms of selling our own brands to the market. And I think a big feature of that development and growth and learnings is that when we did the 8.7 million back in 1819, it was predominantly with our Crichton's core brands and it was predominantly in the discount sector. And what we've done over the following three periods is we've, number one, evolved not only those core brands, but we've evolved other brands into higher price points, which means we've pushed into more mastige positioning and more um, mass retail. So our brands are now very well represented across the grocery sector. We obviously are in both of the big two drugstore high street chains. More recently, we've moved into pharmacy and into the convenience sectors. So really moving the distribution profile of all of our brands through um, the price points, but also developing and launching brands much like the Curl Company image there with much higher price points um, than we had traditionally operated back in 18 and 19. Um, we also were trading pretty much just one or two brands at that point as well, where now we're trading six very successfully. And then with the addition of Emma Hardy and Brodie and Stone, that's taken us up to eight or nine brands. So not only have we extended distribution and moved price points upwards, but also extended the type of brands that we have, which again allows us to go to different types of retails and different types of platforms. And then obviously the most important thing that has happened, which has really gear changed our business, is moving into the premium space with the acquisition of Emma Hardy this year. And I'll go into a bit more detail on that. But I thought it was really important to kind of outline just focusing on brands, how that development has happened over the past four years and recognizing that those brands have in the main been developed and conceptualized in-house along with the acquisition of Balance Active, the Brody and Stone brands, and obviously Emma Hardy. wanted to give you a very top line, which again supports what I was just saying about the journey of our brands as to where our brands are now being sold. So we've moved from just being a UK supplier to UK retail into one that is now supplying 30% of our total group sales into global markets and 20% of our group sales B2C. And again, I just wanted to top line demonstrate how the journey of our brands have developed over the past three to four years, not just in terms of distribution, but in terms of the percentages of where we're selling these brands globally and in terms of the different platforms that are available to us. Again, outlining our mass, mastige, and premium positioning on brand. So you can see the breadth of brands and how our journey is evolving. So even at that mass level, which we have significant brands, we have moved very successfully from four years ago from that pound price point 
up into the 199, 299, 399, and even pushing the 499 price marks at that mass level, which is making a big impact on our gross margins that we're able to achieve and also in terms of the visibility of our brands and where we can go with them. At the Mastige level, Feather and Down and Curl Company doing very well, which I'll talk about in a minute. And then obviously our our key kind of gear changing decision to acquire Emma Hardy at the premium level. So going into a bit more detail of the different types of brands that we have at the different levels, Crichton's brand has evolved from last year to this year's trading period, the one that we're reporting on, from 4 million to 7 million. So we've grown it by 75% year on year. We are now in 5,000 stores in the UK and 20 international markets with our Crichton's brand. It really is powering ahead in terms of the number of doors that we're getting, the visibility that we're getting, and the contribution that it's making to our overall brands. As highlighted earlier, this trading year, we've made our first entrance into the convenience sector, which is very exciting. Um, and two national pharmacy groups. So taking ourselves beyond just the value retailers and the grocers into other retail channels that are going to provide us, I think, with even more stretch and growth, particularly within the UK. What is interesting about the Crichton's brands is 40% of them are sold into international markets. Um, So whilst this particular category of product is very margin sensitive and cost sensitive because of the place that it has in the UK market, It has a more premium standing in international markets. So we are able to charge higher selling prices to international markets and they retail at much higher um, retail prices to the consumer. So it's a really nice mix. And I think that 40% on global contribution of our Crichton's brands will increase over the next two to three years as we enter more markets with these brands. They sit very, very well with leading grocery and leading drugstore retailers in markets all over the world. What has been a real accolade for us this year with Crichton's is we actually won Best UK Brand Beauty um, at the Global Makeup Awards uh, for 2022, um, which was very exciting for us that a brand that is positioned in value and mass has been recognised by consumers and it's consumer voted um, as um, a leading UK brand. And I think extending the brand into convenience and to national pharmacy is going to increase the profile and availability, which was one of the things I talked about earlier, um, so that consumers have more accessibility to be able to buy these brands. What is also very important in this category is that we nail new product launches. Um, we've definitely improved over the past two to three years in terms of our success rate with regard to NPD. And that has happened because we now um, use digital data with regard to Amazon and Google, particularly um, in being able to monitor live on a weekly basis what consumers are looking for. So that enables us to target products better in terms of our confidence and success rate um, for launching new products to market. And a good example of that is we recently launched um, in the past seven months, eight months, a salicylic range of products, four products, which has driven half of our skincare sales growth in our Crichton's brand over the past 12 months. And that's been a really a good success for us. Balance Active and T-Zone in the mass space are two brands that we have acquired. Balance Active back in 2019 and T-Zone in September, August of last year. Balance had 1,500 stores, listing of 1,500 stores when we acquired the brand in July 2019. We now have 3,000 stores in the UK. So we've doubled our coverage of where the brand is in the UK market. And again, very much like the story that I've just explained to you with Crichton's is we've moved the balanced brand 
very successfully from the discount and value sector, which it still trades very successfully, but into mass. And that's been really um, a really good point in terms of growth for this brand. We actually have delivered four times sales growth on this brand since we bought it back in July 2019. It's now turning over in excess of 4.5 million for us. Um, so it's been a real success story in terms of transitioning into our business and in terms of how we very initially stabilized the brand, took advantage of the low-hanging fruit opportunities, and then moved it forward with new listings and new customers. Um, it's also doing incredibly well in export. We've doubled export sales since we bought it back in July 2019. And we think that it has tremendous potential in some other key markets where we can continue export sales growing. And we're continuing to evolve the brand with MPD as well. It's very important at this level of mass skincare that you keep on top of the consumer and you keep on top of the trend and deliver that MPD. So we've had some really nice MPD delivering to the market for balance over the past couple of months that I'm confident will deliver to the growth of the brand over the next 12 months. With regard to T-Zone, And I know there's some questions coming through with regard to our expectations of T-Zone since we purchased it. One of the things that was a priority with T-Zone was stabilizing the brand, exactly the same journey that we had when we purchased Balance Active. T-Zone has huge consumer awareness that does not have a sales profile, in my opinion, to match how well thought of this brand is in the market with regard to consumer reviews and with regard to awareness. However, when we purchased it, we purchased it at a time where stock and supply challenges were at their peak. The previous owners had definitely struggled with it in the kind of latter months of trade. So when we inherited it, we recognized very quickly that we needed to do exactly what we did on balance. We needed to focus on stock and supply issues. We needed to make sure that all of the artwork and registration issues were dealt with, and particularly with regard to export opportunities. We did a very quick manufacturing transition. We were manufacturing some of these products within about a month of purchasing the brand. And as Eamon highlighted, we had everything manufactured that is manufactured in-house. We do have some products that we bring in direct from China, but everything that was manufactured in-house within a two to two and a half month period. So much like Balance Active, we repeated all of that exercise and did it very successfully. And then a big priority was restoring customer confidence. I walked into a situation of significant out of stocks with many, many big customers that did lose some listings in the early days. We have managed to secure most of those back, which will impact from autumn 22 and spring 2023. So again, repeating the journey that we went on with with Balance Active, um, I have huge confidence in this brand. Um, We have now started taking out to international markets In terms of presentation, we have now stabilized it. We still have some work to do with regard to getting the right products with the right customers, which is an evolving process. Um, I have all customers on board with us. Not all of them have the right products for the type of consumer that they have. Um, But we're seeing some nice sales come through where the brand was um, stabilized in terms of its ranging and uh, it is growing. Um, So we have some new listings coming for the the Newton's version in spring 23 and for the T-Zone version. I think there is significant international opportunities for these two brands and the team and the sales team and I are very excited about what that will deliver us for this this trading year and 2023. Feather and Down, doing extremely well. It has grown significantly in the past year. Um, We conceptualized and launched this brand 
in Boots in 2017 in 80 stores exclusively for its first year. Our first order, opening order, was £31,000. And this brand to this trading year will hit trading sales for us of four million. We're now in a thousand stores across the UK market in eight core retailers. So it's been a really fun ride um, with Feather and Down in watching this brand go from a very niche well-being brand in 80 stores in boots now to over a thousand stores across eight retailers, all core major retailers in the UK. And is really leading the charge with regard to sleep and the well-being category in the UK market. Uh, now in all in top three grocers, both high street drugstores were on the number one marketplace, and we've just launched on um, a UK beauty marketplace in the UK market. Christmas gifting is a key part of this brand, and that is now in six major retailers for Christmas coming up this year. So you'll see a lot of feather and down gifting across the piece. That also includes online. What is very interesting about Feather and Down is we've developed all of this just in the UK market. Um, we haven't yet managed to develop successfully internationally. Uh, two reasons for that. Number one, wanted to make sure that we had secured the UK market and had really made it a recognizable brand across the piece in UK retail. But also a lot of international markets have been um, very behind the UK market in recognizing the development of well-being. Um, the UK market, which continues to lead beauty and well-being, has really uh, been a market leader. And we now have a lot of international markets seeing that the success of this brand and well-being in the UK and are now beginning to understand what that can do for them in their markets. So I would see that the trading year that we're in and then into 23, 24, the big next step for us is to develop this brand internationally. Um, and I'll, I'll keep you um posted on that as we develop that over the next six to 12 months. There's a number of key presentations going on at the moment um, and things that we're doing to raise the profile of the brand internationally. Um, and I have high hopes that we'll be able to take this brand forward even more in international markets. Wanted to reinforce awards. It's a big one for us. We've currently won 22 in 22, which has been very exciting and the year's not done yet. The reason these are so important is because it reinforces the brand perception to the consumer and our retailers that we're selling to. It gives us a great opportunity in terms of social media content and winning all of these awards has helped us in increase our social media followings and our social media profiles, which all of you know is absolutely essential for having brands in the year 2022 and moving forward. And it enables us to get more brand visibility across the piece in terms of um, digital platforms, but also harnessing that in bricks and mortar as well in terms of what we do um, with regard to point of sale and um, freestanding display units and what we do in terms of trade marketing with bricks and mortar. So currently won four awards in hair care, eight in skincare, five in bath and body well-being, which is feather and down and three in self-tan. So really going great guns in terms of getting recognition in the market. Moving on to Emma Hardy, one of the most significant things that we've done in brand, if not the most significant thing that we've done in brand in the past 12 months. And I wanted to frame again the reasons that we were interested in this brand and why this brand was the one that we wanted. Number one, highly aspirational with high consumer awareness. It continues to surprise me how many consumers we come across, not just in the UK, but internationally, and considering it doesn't really have an international sales profile yet, 
how the awareness of the brand in international markets is considerably high. It definitely punches above its weight in terms of consumers knowing this brand. So it's a very sought after brand appealing to a very wide range of customers, which is exactly where we wanted it to be in premium skincare. It sits very well in that high end, high margin category. Our average retail price that we have in this brand is £45, so sits very well in that category. It's exclusively sold through a number of premium place retailers. Again, that adds very nicely to our total portfolio of brands. So unlike the Brody and Stone brands, which are placed within exactly the same retailer profiles of our Crichton's brands, this has brought to us a whole new raft of both online and bricks and mortar brands, uh, sorry, retailers that we haven't previously had our brands placed in. So that's been very exciting for us. Significant percentage of sales are online. And I'll go through that in a bit more detail. That was a huge appeal to us in terms of acknowledging that's a big driver for premium beauty across the board. And it's a British brand. It was a brand that was founded by Emma, a very well-known British facialist. It has its foothold in being a British brand and is recognized by the consumer in the industry through the awards that it's won over the past few years as being a, a, a recognized British brand. So again, that was a that was an added benefit for us. The opportunity as we saw it and still see it, it was completely gear-changing for us. Premium brand, premium retail, and online platforms completely, totally changed the perception that Crichton's now has in the market. We're seeing the benefits of that with regard to recruitment. We're seeing the benefits of that with regard to how our current retailers see us. It's adding to, if you like, the the trickle-down benefits I had a major retailer on site last week that now sees that we're developing and producing very high-end skincare formulations. And that is having a trickle-down effect as how we're being perceived in both contract manufacturing and private labels. So Emma Hardy, you know, the rationale for buying it, of course, was for our brands and increasing our brand equity and the profile of what we're doing there. But the trickle-down effect in the other parts of our business has been incredibly positive. Key for us is that Emma Hardy, probably above all of our other brands, facilitates our expansion into the USA and China. And I'll talk about China a little bit more in a minute. As I've highlighted, completely increases the value of our overall brand equity. And again, that's part of that kind of gear changing, profile changing view of Crichton's in the market. And as we outlined when we first outlined the justification for buying the brand is the manufacturing and management synergies to drive a higher return in that space of high margin, high-end premium skincare. So for us, the priorities since we've had the brand from August last year, these have been our priorities, is to maximize and protect the premium position of the brand. We did not want to upset the foundations that have been built in this brand over the past 10 years. Barry Cook and the team that have looked after this brand for a number of years, have built an excellent foundation in terms of consumer understanding, formulation performance, retail listings with key bricks and mortar and online retailers. And what has been a number one priority us is to maximize and protect that position whilst we've been in the infancy of owning this brand. We are also investing in a sales driving team. We believe that's what the next step for this brand on its journey is. It has phenomenal products, and we need to harness that and turn that into a really strong sales driving machine so that we can expand both in the UK and international markets, which is our next priority, and that's extending global availability. 
The brand has small pockets of international trade, which I think is a really nice start. And our priority, both with the USA and China as two um, leading priorities, is to extend that availability in those markets. Delighting the loyal customer, Emma Hardy consumers, that is very important when you're a premium brand. It's important for any brand, but it's particularly important when you're at the premium end of the market. When you acquire these consumers, it is so important at the premium end that you keep them. Um, if they love your product, they love what you're offering them, you continue to delight them, then you will continue to keep a very loyal customer base, which I have to say Emma Hardy, as part of that brand foundation, has done an excellent job at. Winning new consumers, of course, that's on the agenda. And I'll talk a little bit about that in terms of a new product launch that we've done since we've acquired the brand in terms of trying to attract new consumers to the brand and continuing to deliver first-class tried and tested MPD. Very important part of delighting that consumer and winning new consumers. So what have we done and what's been happening since we acquired the brand? There's been a new exciting launch of a range of products called Lotus Flower. It was launched into the UK market in May 2022, so it's very new. The key focus, however, for the development of these range of products was also to help us with launch into China. Um, the benefits of these products complement the Emma Hardy range completely in terms of appealing to a wide range of consumers. And we feel that the Lotus Flower will bring in um, a new consumer that is um, suffering with uh, skin problems with regard to blemishes, redness, and kind of modern day stressed skin features that are happening in the skincare market. So that will appeal to our existing consumer, but it should also bring in a much younger consumer to the brand. Um, so we're very excited about the launch of Lotus Flower um, and, and what that does in terms of the profile of the consumer that it would attract. We've also launched into the Irish market with a key retail partner just this month. Some launch activity and launch parties are happening in terms of that during July and August. We've invested in new plamogram fixtures with our number one retailer. So we're going to have secondary sighting with that number one retailer in top stores. That is going to be up to 60 stores. And what we all know about brands, if you have more space, more shelf presence, more um, coverage in store, you will sell more product. So again, that kicks in from the autumn of this year. We've also, in conjunction with that, invested in more brand ambassadors on the ground in the UK market. These are very well-qualified and well-educated representatives of the brand that work very closely with our premium retailers. They do facials, they do pop-up shops, they do events in store, um, they talk to consumers and liaise with consumers in store. And it's a very important part of our journey in terms of making sure that we, are, we have a very close relationship with our consumer. The most exciting development from a sales point of view is we're moving into China with Emma Hardy. I have to say from a registration and a compliance point of view, Barry Cook and the team had done a phenomenal amount of work with regard to trademark registrations and, if you like, behind the scenes operational and product development requirements that need to be done to enter China, which are significant. We have been able to accelerate that and kind of help push that through so that um, during the month of, of July, we're going to be opening our first WeChat and Tmall stores direct in China. Um, so we're launching on digital platforms, which is the way to launch in China. 
Um, our second phase is also having all the products registered in China so that we can sell direct into China with regard to bricks and mortar as well. But the digital piece is the is the priority and what's happening first, and that will be followed up by bricks and mortar over the next few months so that we can really take advantage of the Chinese market. Again, we've been very surprised with a piece of research that we did before we decided the right route with China on the awareness that the Emma Hardy brand has in the Chinese market, particularly the hero product, the Moringa balm, cleansing balm, in terms of the Chinese understanding. So we're very all very excited about that launch. We continue to invest a lot in beauty boxes and advent calendars. Um, no doubt you've seen them. We recently were in the Lisa Snowden U Magazine beauty box, which was just launched last week. That was the latest one we were part of. So that's had tremendous profile. We've also been part of Caroline Huron's. Um, and we're working with Marks and Spencers. We're working with a number of big, big retailers in terms of being in their beauty boxes. Presentations are also underway where we have presence in market. So Australia, the Middle East and South America. So where we already work with some really nice retailers, we're taking advantage of that, which would be the natural thing to do in terms of presenting to those retailers and hopefully make some progress with listings during 2023 with those retailers. And again, just focusing on the importance of brand awareness and PR. We have a phenomenal PR agency that we inherited that has worked on the brand for about 10 years. Claire Ford and her team do a phenomenal job in getting us fantastic coverage throughout the UK. And actually, Claire is now working with us with regard to entering the US market because we need to do a lot of pre-work in terms of getting our social profile and our PR profile increased in the USA uh, before we can actually launch in market. So we're working very closely with her and her, Claire and her team and taking advantage of what she's done over the years um, in terms of getting the profile of the brand um, in the UK market for Emma Hardy to as high as she has. So she is a tremendous asset, her and her team, that we will continue to invest in moving forward. D2C, now accounting for 20% of our total group sales and the charge is really being led by Emma Hardy and Feather and Down. However, the Curl Company and Balance Active over the past six to eight months are starting to make an impact too, which is very exciting. Um, our Crichton's brands don't fit well on a D2C platform because of the price points that they have. So therefore, the Mastige and Premium brands, as you would anticipate, are a natural fit in terms of growing the D2C space. Emma Hardy now accounts, 60% of Emma Hardy sales now accounting for direct-to-consumer, 40% of Feather and Downs. Um, Emma Hardy's D2C is direct that we do ourselves, but is predominantly driven through the specialist beauty platforms and has done a tremendous job over the past five years in terms of building profile on those platforms. However, digital is changing. It's changing into marketplaces and we intend to change with it. Um, the advantage of that is that you get you gain more control. You gain more visibility of your consumers, so that you have a direct relationship with them. You gain the databases. You gain control of your promotional programs. So whilst there's been a phase over the past kind of five years with working very closely with specialist um, D2C platforms, which is exactly the place that Emma Hardy should have been and should be, we're recognizing that as it evolves over the next couple of years that that is going to turn into something quite different. Um, China is a good example. Those platforms that we're launching are our stores. We're in control. We have the databases. We have the direct relationship with the consumer. And we will evolve that in the UK market um, as things 
develop for us over the next couple of years. So that's a priority. Interestingly, with Feather and Down, um, we have twofold elements. We have a direct relationship with the consumer and we are on platforms. So the same will happen there. We're going to, we have a priority in digital to expand marketplaces. Um, I don't know if you're all aware, but even the big retailers are now launching big marketplaces. Um, so Superdrug have just launched one. I think that will be incredibly successful for them. ASOS has launched one. Um, and other major retailers are moving into the marketplace space um, quite significantly. Um, and there are lots of advantages for both them and for the brand. Um, and we intend to be part of that moving forward. So just a summary in terms of where we are on brand. I've covered a lot of this, but I thought it was important just to kind of highlight the top points. Brand momentum. In terms of 39% on core brands, 68% year-on-year on all brands when you take in the acquisitions versus 19% last year up to 33%, 27% on core. Growing our export sales, the gear changer of purchasing Emma Hardy and what that means for us as a business in terms of both our profile and in terms of our brand equity. Feather and Down doing incredibly well from its very early beginnings five years ago. Balance Active doing incredibly well for us in terms of brand growth, and I would anticipate seeing the same kind of growth for the brands that we've acquired in that space. Organic growth at the core Crichton's level is doing incredibly well through extended distribution and international growth. And then product excellence continues to be at the top of our agenda. So not forgetting private label and contract manufacturing. I've obviously focused considerably on our brands and wanted to really give you a very full and ex an, an extensive journey in terms of where we've been over the past few years on brand because of the contribution it's now making to our total business, but not forgetting the big contributor of private label and the big contributor of contract manufacturing. So I've highlighted private label, incredibly cost inflation challenged. The current activities are heavily biased towards firefighting. We are developing and working very closely with retailers. Um, we are empathetic to how significant these increases are and what that means for the consumer. So we've developed more transparency with our retailers in terms of uh, what we're doing with our systemized cost price uh, process that we're going through, which is continuing, hopefully, to have a positive um, collaborative relationship with retailers. We're working on cost engineering. We're working on different sizes. We're working on different types of ingredients. Um, incredibly challenging and not able to succeed everywhere with what we're trying to do there, but definitely trying to work in a very collaborative way with the big retailers in terms of what they're facing and what the consumer is facing. And as I highlighted earlier, private label development is now back on top with retailers at all levels. Um, we've had more briefs through for private label development in the past six months than we've had in two years. And I think that's a very good sign in terms of what that means for this trading year, but, all, but definitely the following trading year once product gets to market. Contract manufacturing, cost has become king with any new business that we're going after. That has not always been a feature of contract manufacturing when you're contract manufacturing for premium brand, which is where we position ourselves. And that is just indicative of the things that I've highlighted with supply challenges and cost inflation. Everybody is feeling the pinch. However, a positive feature in contract manufacturing is that our existing customer base, where we have long-term good premium growth relationships, they're weathering those price increases incredibly well. And we're working again very closely with them as we are with our private label retailers, um, very collaboratively in terms of trying to share as much information as we possibly can with regard to commodity pricing and what's really driving the cost inflation in our market. So a final slide from me, the way ahead for us, we remain consumer centric. I think that is all important at every level. 
We intend to continue to drive growth through our brand portfolio, which hopefully I've demonstrated through to you today in terms of what I've presented. Incredibly cost-aware and margin-focused. That is absolutely essential for our success and continuing to be profitable. International growth is a key feature of what we're doing with brands. And then product performance at all levels. That's something that is a foundation for everything that we do. So that's it from me. And I'm going to hand you back to Bernard for some final words. Thank you, Pippa. Great presentation. So I just want to very quickly point to the way ahead for us, given the background that you've heard from Eamon and from Pippa. We want to continue to grow each of the brands organically. We want to control and will control our overhead and reduce without damaging the quality of service to consumers and to customers. That's a no-brainer, something we are already in the process of doing quite successfully. And I think we'll be more successful with it as time goes on. We'll beat the targets that we have in this presentation. We want to maximize manufacturing efficiency by continuing to upgrade and automate. There are many, many advantages to that. We want to conserve cash and borrowings. We want to mothball plans to issue further shares for acquisition or options. I see some of the questions coming in relate to that, and that's a clear statement. I think the share price and the retail shareholders have given us a message. We aspire to return to an annualized 7% net profit before tax within 12 to 18 months. Our goal is to still reach the 100 million. We've talked about it many times in previous presentations, and I want to get there before I get onto a Zimmer frame. But I think, uh, in all honesty, with the current uh, fierce headwinds we have, which I think are quietening down, I think we're past, we've just passed the cusp, um, and we feel that, uh, that there will be a slightly smoother road ahead. But it'll take us another two two years, and we will. We will get there. Um, our organic growth in brands, as you can see, is phenomenal. Um, I think Emma Hardy and T-Zone were the two ends of the spectrum on that brand uh, growth plan. And I think Pippa outlined it pretty well. Um, the one area that we have um, that we haven't, we know pretty well, and we've done well in the past, is the USA with a dollar at 120 or just under 120 makes it a very attractive market. And we think some of our brands are ideal for that particular area. So um, I don't think there are any other slides and it would be probably good to move to questions, which we would welcome. And thank you all very much, by the way. Thank you very much, Bernard, and all of you. Brody and Stone six-month sales are about 20% of the 12-month revenue to December 2020. Was this anticipated? And what can we expect over the short and medium term? Good Don't question. Me to answer that, Bernard? I'm happy to Yes, please. Yep. Um, I'm hoping I, I answered some of that in my presentation. Um, on purchasing the Brody and Stone brand, we were faced with significant supply chain and stock issues. So we've almost had to step backwards to move forwards. Um, I think we're through that now. Um, the team have spent incredible amounts of time getting back into stock, resourcing some elements of packaging and raw materials, getting the manufacturing in-house so that we could get in control of when we manufactured and how much we manufactured it. 
there were incredible shortages to customers that were happening even pre-purchase that hit us. And we were, we were cognizant that that was the case. We knew that that's what we were walking into. I think it hit us a little harder with the supply challenges globally that we actually didn't anticipate. Um, but as we had successfully done it with Balance Active, I was confident that we would do it with T-Zone. Uh, we have done it with T-Zone. So T-Zone now is all about sales growth. It's all about getting the right mix of products with the right retailers and sales growth. So yes, whilst I see from the numbers you're looking at, that does look perhaps disappointing from, from a shareholder perspective. Actually, a large element of that was anticipated. It has been hit harder because of the global supply challenges because I couldn't turn it around as quickly as I could balance. But we are through that now. And now it's really about moving forward and motoring ahead. Pippa, probably just probably just to add to that, we are, but we we have the manufacturing in place for all of those products. So with the additional sales become the additional uh, margin benefit. Margin benefit. Yeah. I think the thing that continues to delight me about this brand, and by the way, it was a brand that I used to use in my 20s. It's been around for a very long time. I've always loved this brand, is again, like Emma Hardy, it has a huge consumer awareness. And it doesn't match the sales profile. So filling that gap is our first priority. When you've got a consumer awareness of a brand so high, we just need to get it in the right retail points with the right mix of products for the consumer to move forward with it. Um, so we're representing to, to retailers where I know this brand exists before and because of its stock issues, is no longer listed. And already we're getting tremendous feedback from those retailers that they're fundamentally still interested in this brand they just lost confidence because they couldn't get regular stock. They couldn't get regular pricing. Um, so our number one priority was to stabilize it. And that did mean stepping back a few steps to move forward. But all positive, very positive about the T-Zone brand. Thank you very much. And um, on Emma Hardy, the integration's been paused to allow time for restructuring the formulations. Is there any concern around interruptions to product availability as a result, and that these premium clients are going to be forced to seek alternative third-party brands? Not, not quite sure what, uh, we're not reconstructing formulations, we're matching formulations. This is a really good product. All the formulations are outstanding. Um, it is a difficult product to make. We will we will be making it in the future. We're more or less there in terms of the number of formulations we had to match. But I, I don't think there's a, a, a big issue here. Thank you very much. Um, and talking about the run rates on Emma Hardy, um, they seem to be significantly below what they were at acquisition. And what are the issues that have led to that? And what's the prognosis going forward? And then there's another question that's saying, although you speak about on um, Brady and Stone, the stock situation and recovery, they weren't priced as distressed asset acquisitions. So what went wrong? Okay, Pippi, do you want to answer the first part of that question? Yeah, I, I, I don't think anything went wrong with Brody and Stone. I think the previous business didn't have the muscle to deal with the global supply challenges that were beginning to hit. Um, and we knew that we could. So absolutely, there was no distress in it. Um, but what we all know is that, you know, if retailers don't have stock on time when they want it, they will only sucker that for so long. That's why we focus so heavily on our service levels to customers. And that's what we do incredibly well. So that was an easy solve for us. So it wasn't about it being distressed. It was just about a previous 
business owner that just didn't have the muscle that was needed in terms of global supply, in terms of supplier relationships to start dealing with all those challenges that were starting to hit everybody with regard to um, getting items out of the Far East, the cost of containers. I mean, even back as early as June, July last year, those supply challenges post-COVID were beginning to hit the market. Um, so from that point of view, no distress in terms of Brody. With regard to Emma Hardy, Martin Bernard, I'm happy to answer that question in part two. Um, yeah. The sales run rates that we're getting out of EPOS and what we're doing is is has not declined at all. It's exactly where it was when we bought it. Um, so interestingly, I think there's been a, been a reference at some point to where we anticipated the sales to be. That would be in a full 12 months trading period. Obviously, we inherited the brand halfway through our trading year. Um, and January, February, March are always the slowest selling months for any brand post-Christmas. Um, and they were for Emma Hardy, but they're exactly where we anticipated it to be. So I don't know if that answers that question. Or if Bernard, you've got anything to add to that? Yeah, yeah, I would add to it. Um, there are two different propositions for, for us and, and for me. Um, the Emma Hardy proposition is one where th- this brand is a global brand, not like T-Zone, which is very, very, uh, very good and, and uh, historic in the UK in the discount and mass market. It's right up our street, T-Zone. We do it every day. We can we can match it every day. We, we, we'll solve the problems. We'll get that run rate up to over 4 million or whatever. Emma Hardy is a different proposition. It's a global brand. We can drop it into the United States. We can drop it into China. We can drop it in. You don't drop T-Zone into China. You don't drop it into the United States. But we have to get things right before we do that. Um, and, and, and that's the difference. I would expect in, in three, four years' time to have Emma Hardy at, at 10 million. I'm not sure I would be as positive on T-Zone, but I know it will still be generating profit for us. It's, it's, it doesn't require all the uh, uh, mass media and, and cost that is required in Emma Hardy. But the benefits in Emma Hardy, if you have a 10 million brand in, in two or three years' time, it's worth 20 million. The equity of the company goes up. It's a different proposition. It takes it to a different a level in 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 the market, and particularly in skincare, and particularly now when heat is the big problem in the West here. Um, things can only get better on skincare products. Um, hopefully that answers the question. Thank you very much, Bernard. And do you regret guaranteeing equity at 125p for the acquisition, <laughs> given the subsequent decrease in share price, which means greater dilution than planned? What a good question. I never expected that question. Well, the, the, the answer to that is, of course, it's two-pronged. Two for me, I, the, I don't know if I've, ju- uh, I've explained um, in the previous answer just how um, uh, keen I was to buy, or keen we were to buy the Emma Hardy brand. And in those negotiations, I'm sure uh, the seller is listening at the minute because he has a vested interest uh, or they have a vested interest. But there there was a a gap of two million and I could pay that in cash or I thought I was being really clever and and doing something that would save the cash and and perhaps even be beneficial to the, the, the seller. It didn't work out that way. And I suppose from that, that point, I do regret it, but I don't regret buying Emma Hardy and I needed to pay that much money. 
Um, I wish the share price had gone the other way. I don't understand why it's where it is. And in, in that, I've had to change the whole uh, dynamic of what we're doing. We're not going for acquisitions anymore. But in actual fact, if that share price had continued to rise, I would have had another really, really good brand already, which I'd I, I negotiated, but we've, we've uh, desisted. And it's quite clear that the market is telling us we need to get our, our, our basic baseline back in, in up to 7 8% before we should uh, tackle the acquisitions again. Hope that answers the question. That's great, Bernard. Thank you very much. And out of interest, how much did it cost to develop the £4 million sales in Feather and Down? And do you consider value for money compared with the acquisitions? Is, is that to say how well we've increased the equity? Because Feather and Down is probably worth uh, uh, six or eight million as a brand, perhaps, I don't know. But the, 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 it, 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 we wouldn't have an exact number, but it's one of those things that belongs with the genius of, of the team we have. Um, we, didn't set, uh, we didn't set out six years ago to develop a Feather and Down. We would have, uh, but Pippa saw the opportunity. She had the team to do it. And probably uh, she might want to come in on this, but probably for less than half a million, we've developed a potential six, seven million pound brand. Pippa, would you like to take a... Yeah, it would be difficult to put an exact number on it because it's developed so organically with us. Um, but Bernard's probably about right in terms of that investment, yeah. So tremendous value for money compared to the acquisitions. Yeah, yep. Thank you. And you mentioned that you've gone from uh, you've gone down to one shift across the group. Does that indicate greater efficiency or reduce sales? And how do you see capacity utilization going forward? Um, I don't know where we said that uh, in the um, RNS. Uh, uh, right down, but the, the, yeah, in the RNS, our target is to go down to one shift. Uh, we're not quite there yet. Um, and, and but it is to substantially reduce the shift operation, um, and we will probably be at one shift very shortly. But just on energy costs alone, if you if you're increase if you're paying 1.2 million a year for energy costs, you want to look in every single area, at every single machine, and every single nook, and every single cranny, and um, not only that, but um, the extra costs of, of engineers on night shift, it just makes sense. It, it will reduce our capacity to some extent, but we've improved our planning. One of the things that helps on the second shift is that your planning doesn't have to be so precise. And planning with our complexity of, of customers and products is quite difficult, but we have upgraded our planning, which is part of our cost and part of our depreciation, but it has been upgraded. We can plan better and we're pretty confident that we can get the one shift totally by um, the end of the year. Our target is is to take it down substantially by the end of August. And what's the quantum of the cost savings that you'll achieve through manufacturing efficiencies? Uh, between one shift and manufacturing efficiency, I, I would think on manufacturing efficiencies, I see it as being probably 30,000 a month um, in that area. If we increase our volumes, it'll be more. If we have less volume, it'll be less. But round about that. Um, then, uh, Bernard, then Bernard, to add to that, obviously, if you go down to a lower shift operation, you'll take you'll take out costs in, in addition to those in addition to those efficiencies as well. 
Yep. Thanks, Emma. Thank you very much. And stock provisions, uh, 10% of inventory value. Is there a problem with old stock and will you be able to sell it? And why is the inventory so high? Well, it's, it's probably a couple of my just on the provision. First of all, we're happy to we're, we're, we've provided for the items that needed to be provided for. And that's about the level of provision that we we had we had carried certainly last year um, broadly in line with it. Um, so that's so that's specifically on the stock point with regard to why is the stock so high. I think we covered that off in the presentation. Two aspects: we've got the acquisition uh, additional additional stock coming in from the acquisitions, uh, which which has boosted it up. And I think we've got just under twenty percent of the core business. And you know, I would say we'll have probably somewhere in the in the region of a million of that is probably cost related uh, stock, maybe a little bit under a million. And then we spoke also about the um, supply chain pressures, and we have taken a couple of deliberate decisions in order to ensure continuity of the supply, the stock for our brands, our growing branded businesses that we are. We have taken some things to increase lead times to actually take in more stock systematically. I, I think, uh, you know, we're really good at most things. One, one of the little blind spots I think we have is we're not as good at controlling stocks. We are putting extra resources into that as well. Uh, but if you're, if you're working at the pace we are, and going for the kind of quality of service, um, particularly across customers like the high street drugstores, um, you really have to, to make sure you have everything in line and available. But we have improved our planning systems and we will have that stocked on by a substantial amount this time next year. Thank you. And considering the lag in passing on this year's price increases, do you intend to become more aggressive with the next year's increases? I, I'm not quite sure. I, I'll let Pippa um, answer the question, but I'm not sure quite what the what's behind that that um, the actual question. It, there is just a lag. I mean, it, it takes three months to negotiate a price increase with those big high street retailers, and in fact, some of them won't even talk to you for a month about it. Uh, they won't answer the phone. They don't do this. They don't do that. Uh, so there is a lag and, you know, we, we can't, we, we've caught up now so that we know what the process is. But since November, since this whole tsunami hit us to now, there's probably a lag which we'll work through more in, in, in this current financial year rather than last year. A lot of the stuff that we had went into stock. One of the reasons for stock increases was if, you're, if your raw materials increase in price by 15% and the value goes up by 15%. but um, I, I'll let Pippa take over that question. I was going to say, what I would probably add to that, um, there's two parts to that, I suppose. Number one, um, I don't think it's necessarily about being more aggressive. I think we've been completely and utterly transparent and we've highlighted to retailers exactly what is needed. So it's not about necessarily being more aggressive with those price increases. I think actually what we're applying is a, a more collaborative monthly review with them and we're sharing more information. I think that's a more positive way. With regard to next year's price increases, there is no annual price increase process with these retailers. So it's not about, you know, we've done it this year, so we'll wait until next year or you do it, they expect it every year. What we've put into play is a monthly review with them. So we have a full monthly cost review coming out of my purchasing team every month that my commercial team reviews if that has moved substantially, we update the retailer. So if we had to, we'd do it every month. Now, that 
practically isn't going to wash with most of the retailers, but that doesn't mean we're not communicating that information. So it's, I suppose it's currently, we did it back in December, January, we've just done it again. So, and we did actually, we did some others kind of end of February. So it's more about, we do it when it's needed um, by sharing that information. We've invested in a really great piece of software over the past few months called Mintech, that's giving us live data and forecasting data on key commodities. And we're building models on that piece of software to give us more, so we can try and get ahead of the problem as opposed to waiting for the problem to hit. And that's been very good for us. And we're sharing that data with the retailers and they're appreciating that. So it isn't about an annual review. It's about a constant review and it's about nailing it and presenting it to the retailer every time there's a significant shift. So I don't know if that answers the question. Thank you. That's great. And um, I don't know whether you've disclosed this, but what are the gross margins across private label, contract and branded categories? Yeah, we don't disclose those separately. I mean, they're not separate reporting business units um, in the account. So we we te- we don't we don't distinguish that distinguish that as uh, for for um, reporting purposes. Thank you very much. Um, you did give aspirations for Emma Hardy and what you would hope to achieve in the first year. Do you have any um, updated aspirations on sales and cost synergies? I suppose Brody and Stone is is like I said, we've had to stabilize and step backwards to move forwards. And I have to say, in the instance of both of those brands, for me to give definitives on what our sales would be, I would be, I suppose, reticent to do that because of what we're up against with regard to supply challenges. I suppose what I would say to you is that Emma Hardy in this financial year will deliver what we anticipated. Brody and Stone may be just slightly behind that curve, but what I'm hoping is going to deliver for Brody and Stone is that, that quite a number of new listings and new developments are coming through for the spring of this year that will impact, if you like, fourth quarter and then really have an impact on the next financial year. Um, both got positive sales momentum, both heading in the right direction. Um, yeah, happy with the performance of both of them in light of the headwinds that we're facing. Thank you very much. And how much surplus working capital do you have in the business to help reduce debt? Uh, it's it, it, it's pro- it's probably if you think about the components of the working capital. So uh, on, on, on the debtors, we've said that we, we said that our debtor days are in the region of 60, 60, 60 days. Is and that's that is if we're sitting here next year, given the profile of customers we have in the mix of businesses, probably it's going to be in that region. And what I, I would expect, so debtors is going to be a, going to be a function of sales. Um, so possibly, possibly not that much uh, um, in terms of those debtors' days. Probably not, there is some opportunities, as Bernard mentioned, around stock. Really, I think it's probably the. I suspect it's the purpose of that question, and uh, it's certainly an area that's getting a lot of focus. Is how do we get how do we how do we get successfully those stock levels down without compromising the business? So I'd certainly see uh, opportunities on, on on the stock side and and this. Um, well, probably when we're reporting on the next ones, I'd expect those stock numbers to be down and, and um, contribute, contributing positively into that cash flow uh, statement. I'd be looking probably to put a number on it, but I, I, I'm sure there, there are opportunities in the, in that particular area, in the stock area. I would say more than more than more than anything else. And should we anticipate to see any M and A this year? I think that's quite clear. That uh, the message I'm getting is that. We should not be doing M&A. There are plenty of opportunities out there. In fact, one of the benefits of Emma Hardy 
acquisition was the day after we completed. I got a call from um, a broker with a with a really good with an equally good skincare brand with three times the turnover. We negotiated, but with the sharp price down where it is, and with the fact that we didn't want to borrow money or or issue on on that share price because it's worth a lot more, we just mothballed it. Uh, so there's no there's no plan for this year until we get that share price back up again to where it should be. And the working capital, as the previous question asked, would squeeze another one to two million out of it. Yeah, we're not we're not doing anything. Lovely. Thank you very much, Bernard. And although we've got lots more questions, we are well out of time. Do you have any closing remarks? No, just to say thanks to everybody for, for attending. I hope you're all still awake. Uh, I'm looking forward to a good lunch. At least the weather is a bit cooler. But thanks um, for for your, your uh, attendance and your attention. And thanks for the questions. They were really good. PI World videos and podcasts are for general information and interest. They do not constitute any kind of recommendation or inducement to buy shares of any company. PI World is not offering any kind of financial advice and nothing in our material should be taken as such.